This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 26, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. A couple years ago, uh, the state of Washington had a referendum on marriage, uh, you probably recall, um, and they were going to uh, and did uh, put forward legalizing um, um, homosexual marriage. And we had to decide as a church at the time I was leading Damascus Road in Marysville, and I don't think this church had been planted yet. It might have been. I can't remember the exact year. But we had to decide if we were going to do anything. We were going to say anything other than just vote you know, privately and, and stay quiet about it. Uh, and we deliberated about that for some time. And what we decided was that even if we didn't feel like we had the power to change, so to speak, or to affect change that greatly and, and do things like picketing or whatnot, we wanted to look back on history and believe that we'd actually um, taken a stand for what we believed was right, what we believed was God's truth. Um, the reason, and there was multiple, but the reason for, for do that, and we made a statement and we, just, and we preached about it and, and then we left it there uh, after having all kinds of conversations, but equipping our people to have other conversations. But the reason we did that is because we believe the Bible um, teaches that marriage was God's design, God's idea, and that marriage proclaims a lot about God. He designed it that way. And if you recall, back in the uh, previous years prior to what is the law today, they had civil unions in the state of Washington, which afforded uh, basically the full rights that married couples have without the definition of marriage attached to it or label of marriage. And so what we saw was less of an effort to obtain rights and equality and more of an effort to ultimately proclaim something about the God uh, of the Bible. And uh, we wanted to uphold who the God of the Bible was. Uh, and didn't want, um, basically, God to be made in the image of man, for man was made in the image of God. Speaking of which is the situation we find ourselves in now. Um, we have certain responsibilities as Christians. And um, the Bible says that men were made in the image of God. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, male and female, he made them. That gender was part of God's design from the beginning to proclaim something about himself again. And so we find ourselves in a situation where we have to decide whether what we're going to say, what we're going to do, or we're going to do anything, say anything. And it's a difficult place to be because we all want to love and, and to, to express um, um, what, you know, basically the gospel that there is forgiveness in Christ, there is love in Christ, there's freedom of shame and guilt in Christ. And at the same time, we want to uphold truths that are going to be unpopular and even persecuted and be if you will, called hateful, even if we just take it, stand in the most gentlest, gentlest of ways. So we believe we've got a few responsibilities in regards to this situation. One is that when given the opportunity, and at all times, but particularly when given an opportunity in a forum, and I think when your city lands up in the national news, you have that opportunity, and responsibility to uphold the truths of God as taught in Scripture. And again, this truth about God is just that, about God, and so we think it's important to stand uh, for God's truth, because we believe we're taking a stand for God and the Bible. Um, but secondly, we believe we also have a responsibility to protect the most vulnerable in our community. And there are many ways that this particular law that the state of Washington and the federal government um, have kind of mandated, there are many ways to implement it. And there are ways to protect those who are most vulnerable, namely our children. Um, and so we believe we have a responsibility to do everything we can to ensure the protection of those most vulnerable, particularly our children. 
Um, and thirdly, we do have a biblical mandate and responsibility to love those who are genuinely struggling with uh, this identity issue. Um, and we do want to fulfill that responsibility as well. And how to do that, to speak grace and to speak truth and to speak lovingly and to love is, is a difficult tension to live in, but that's where we find ourselves. Uh, and so we have uh, reluctantly in the past, um, I'm not one to politicize. People, oh, you're politicizing the pulpit. I'm really not one to do that. If you've been here in a long length of time, you would know that. Um, but we do have um, uh, things for you to sign if you so feel in your conscience to do so about an initiative to ultimately, I think, uphold those three things that we're talking about. And uh, I would commend you to have conversations. I would commend you to, to do your homework. Um, if you look on the OSPI, which is the um, Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction, um, I know a lot of teachers because I was a high school teacher, and uh, some of the new curriculum coming out is um, bad. It's bad at a very young age, very young age, uh, mandated by the, uh, the state. So I would encourage us all to be praying for our community, praying for yourself to have conversations that are loving and truthful, uh, and praying for our church. Um, I don't have any plans to, to do anything crazy, but we need to be ready for the opportunity, and the opportunity has come to us, and so we need to do that. So I'm going to pray for our city, and, uh, and then we're going to get right into God's Word. So if you bow with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have opened our eyes gracefully. You have spoken to us and awakened us to the truth, and we did not deserve anything that you gave us, but you showed us grace, and you removed our guilt and our shame, and you gave us an embrace like a father through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. We thank you for bringing us into your family. We thank you for teaching us the truth, and we ask that you will continue to teach us the truth, the truth of who we are and, and restoring our relationship with you, the truth of our relationship with one another, and our truth of what our relationship is to be with the world. You call us to be a city on the hill. You call us to be salt. And there's at times in doing that, Lord, we need to be the salt that purifies, and we need to be the salt that pervert, preserves. And so I pray you will help us to discern how to do that. Father, would you make us a loving people, a people that is uh, uncompromising with the truth, but a people that loves, truly loves those um, who are needy and broken, which is many among us, including ourselves. Uh, help us to be gracious. Help us to be truthful. Help us to be gentle. Lord, pray for this community and beyond that, Lord, it will, because we love it and we believe your word is the place of joy and the place of health. We pray this community will align itself more with your word. We pray that for the whole world, that they will know the love that is found in Christ and they will begin to love and delight in the ways of Christ. Um, Father, give us the strength to be bold and courageous and the wisdom know when to speak and when to be silent and make us gentle and gracious in all of it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, Genesis 16 is where we're at today, and I'm going to begin in verse 1 and go right through it, and then we'll get right into it. Verse 1 says this, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. 
And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey and of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So he called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlahai Roi, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's Word. Now last week in Genesis 15, our covenant-making God performed an ancient Middle Eastern ritual whereby He took an oath to fulfill His promise to Abram. And he promised that if he failed to uphold the terms of the covenant he made to provide a child, an offspring, and land for them to live in, he would willingly, God, would suffer death for his unfaithfulness. He would die like a man. But more than that, the Lord also promised to suffer death even if his servant, Abram, was unfaithful himself. And so, all of that to tell us, Genesis 15, reveals that the anchor of our hope in this life and beyond is not in our own faithfulness, which will fail, but in God's faithfulness toward us. And we hold tightly to that, strongly to that, remind ourselves of that often. As we get into Genesis 16, it begins by emphasizing the fact that God has yet to fulfill his promise for offspring. It's been 10 years. It'll be another 14-ish before it actually happens. It's a long time, no matter which way you look at it. Sarah is barren. She has no children. Doesn't seem like she can have children. And even before God brought His promise, the lack of children in that particular culture would have been a mark of disgrace for Abram and a true mark of shame for Sarah. But with the promise that they've gotten, they have this renewed hope. They have even a joy and a great expectation beyond what they can see in their old bodies that we're going to experience this blessing. But as I said, it's been 10 years since the first promise was made. And 10 years is a long time. And Sarah, at the ripe age of 65, is still barren and wondering 
how exactly she's going to have kids. Now, her experience wasn't totally uncommon in ancient times. There were women who were barren. Um, and the laws and the customs of, of the day and of the land would have allowed servants, it would have been normal, acceptable for servants to be utilized as concubines, not simply for pleasure, but actually to produce offspring in this kind of situation. That would have been approved. That would have been common in practice. Now, up to this point, Abram has proposed some pretty bad ideas, right? Let's go to Egypt. We're having a famine. God didn't tell us to, but let's do that. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you, since you're really cute, tell them you're my sister. That'll go well. It might end up in you being trafficked to the Pharaoh and maybe marrying him, and that might be a problem, but he's had some bad ideas. Now, God has protected him from his bad ideas, blessed him even through some of his bad ideas. But now this is Sarah's bad idea. And Abram listens to Sarah's bad idea. Perhaps like Adam listened to his wife Eve in the very beginning. It's a little bit of a replay of that in many ways. Now, Genesis 16 is basically broken into two parts. The first half of it is basically the unfaithfulness of man. Right? Man is unfaithful, man makes bad decisions, man is foolish. The second half is God is faithful. Now, to be fair, that is the lesson found in nearly every chapter in the Bible. Man is unfaithful, God is faithful. The theme of the Bible, man is unfaithful, God is faithful. Okay? So it's not a new theme, but it's a repeated one that we often need to hear. Now, God calls his people, he calls all people to believe that he is faithful, that he is going to fulfill his promises in his timing and his way. He does not necessarily want help in fulfilling his promises. He doesn't need our help in fulfilling his promises. What he's calling us to do is to believe his promises despite what we see. He wants us to believe His Word and trust in His Word more than what we feel, which is hard sometimes. Emotions are powerful. We get disturbed. We get scared. We get anxious. We get excited. And we get tempted to trust what we feel more than what God says. He wants us to trust His Word, what He says, more than what we can even understand. There are things that we read in the Bible that are hard to understand. Contrary to popular opinion, I don't understand everything in this Bible. There's stuff I read and go, I don't know. It's a mystery. But instead of rejecting what God says because we don't understand it, we are to trust what He says. What He says. He wants us to trust more in His Word, even more than what we experience. It's amazing at times when we have good or bad experiences, how much they begin to dictate what God's Word says. We have a good experience with something we've been told is wrong. We go, well, maybe it's not that wrong. Or a bad experience with something that's good, we're like, maybe it's not that good. Let God's Word be the thing that we trust. Let His promises be the thing. We're not supposed to dismiss all of our feelings. That's what I'm saying. Feelings are genuine. Feelings are real. Feelings need to be be delved into. We're not just reject all intellect and just, oh, just don't think about it. Just let go and let God. Like, no, that's, 
there's at times I think that might be the case when you are stuck in a place, but no, we don't just stop thinking. We naturally and assuredly should be honest about how we feel and how we think and what we experience. And if we have doubts, we should. But as we have those, we ought to cry out to the Lord before we reach out to the world. We cry out to the Lord before we reach out to the world. It's only when we surrender our need to control a particular circumstance Only when we surrender our need to control and wait on the Lord who hears and who sees and who helps will we ever have enough strength to endure the most difficult of circumstances that don't feel good and don't make sense. Releasing control. I don't know about you, I like control, right? I'm sure you're not a control freak like me. I, I don't like to wait. I'm not a good waiter. Okay? I don't mean waiter tables. Like, I don't like to wait. Now, here's, here's the creepiness of my inability to wait. When I watch movies, I turn, this is by myself. My family would never go for this. But when I watch movies by myself, I turn on the subtitles. Now, that's granted, no matter when we watch movies, subtitles are on. Okay? But I turn on the subtitles, and then I fast forward. But you can't fast forward too fast because the subtitles go away. So you fast forward just enough that the subtitles are there so I can read the story, and get done with it faster. I don't care about the music. I don't care about the... I just want to know the story. I want to know how it ends, right? So when you ever think about talking about movies with me, tell me the end. Oh, I don't want to ruin it for you. Ruin it for me, please. I want to know. I got a gift for you. What is it? I can't tell you. Tell me now. I want to know. I'm bad at waiting. Bad at waiting. And I say that not as a good thing, as a description for perhaps a lot of us. You may not be extreme as me. It's hard to wait on the Lord. And talk about waiting on the Lord for 10 or 24 years for something He said. Would you want to maybe try and control things a little bit? I would. I would. First thing that we're going to observe, though, is the nature of Sarah's unfaithfulness. And I think the difficulty of it is it's really familiar. Yes, it's, I mean, directed maybe towards ladies, right? And Abram, he's directed towards men. But it's really he's directed towards people. Her, her faithfulness Faithlessness is really familiar. There's a lot to learn by the simple fact that they even have an Egyptian servant to begin with. More than likely, this servant joined them when Abram took his ill-advised trip south, and then they brought back with them Hagar. In other words, our past decisions often have lasting and unforeseen consequences until 10, 20 years later. Truly, every past experience, especially the ones of of sin and unfaithfulness, they have the potential to provide a future opportunity for more unfaithfulness as it comes back. But I think we maybe should be a little more hopeful and say, well, that's also an opportunity for faithfulness. Just because something bad comes around, which it certainly may because of a bad decision we made in the past, that doesn't mean that it has to be a moment of unfaithfulness. It may be a great time of growth. It may be a great time when we can declare our faithfulness when before we had not. Now that's not what Sarah does and not what Abram does. 
they are drawn into unfaithfulness in certain ways. First thing she does, in the midst of her difficulty as she's struggling with wanting a child and wanting to see God fulfill His promise, she stops trusting God and she starts blaming God. That often happens. She says, in the first couple of verses, the Lord has prevented me. The Lord has prevented me from having kids. See, when we stop trusting God in our difficulties, we more often than not start blaming Him for our difficulties. God, You did this. If You wouldn't have done that. Or if You would have done that. Man, I can't believe You've done that. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? First thing Adam did, well, the woman you gave me, right? Adam, we're talking about your unfaithfulness. You didn't believe what I said. I know, but if you hadn't given me the woman, I probably wouldn't have done that is the implication. We start blaming him for our difficulties. And at the core of that accusation is actually disbelief about God. When you start blaming him for the hardship that you're experiencing, you are proclaiming something. I do not believe God is good. I do not believe God is gracious. I do not believe God is great enough to be in control of this. I do not believe He is giving me His best. Right? This is hard right now. This is difficult. You said this. I'm experiencing this. Clearly, you're not a father who gives His best. The best time, the best way. I don't believe that. I do not believe that everything I have and everything I don't have is from you, God. You start disbelieving God. You start accusing God and blaming Him for your situation. It continues, and she then refuses to wait on God and she makes a plan to help God. To move His hand. And she says, I got an idea, Abram. I got a servant here. I want you to go into my servant. She's yours. Take her as a wife. And what you really just simply see that instead of crying out to the Lord, she's crying out to her husband, but she's not crying out to the Lord. Instead of crying out to the Lord to help her in her difficult circumstances, she sets out to change her circumstances by trying to control them. And most often, controlling circumstances means manipulating people. People. She's going to manipulate Abram. She's going to manipulate Hagar. Because she has her heart firmly set on a particular desire that she feels she's entitled to or that she just wants desperately, I'm going to get me a baby. I want a baby. I'm going to have a baby. God has not given me a baby, so I'm going to get one through this means. I will do whatever it takes to get fill in the blank, even if it means I have to sin. There's a real evil in the manipulation of people or circumstances to get what you want. And I would say that it's even made worse when you spiritualize it. When you spiritualize like, Don't you think Sarah may have done that? 
you know, we had this problem, Abram, so I think we should do this, though I know that's really bad decision, but I think it might be God's way to get what God promised. When you begin to spiritualize what is clearly wrong or sinful in order to obtain God's promises, to do bad things in the name of God. And that's what she does. She makes a plan, and she rejects God's ways, and she adopts the ways of the world. She starts by blaming God, and I'm not trusting you anymore. Okay, here's my plan, and now I'm going. And she looks around the world. How does the world do it? I'll just do this. That's approved. That's okay. To paraphrase one commentator, he said, God's people are impatient and turn in their anxiety to careless plans rather than to the caring God. Instead of trusting God's Word and patiently waiting, and I say patiently because, again, patience, man, I don't know how many of us have had to wait for something for 24 years. Perhaps you've prayed that someone will be saved for many years and that may be the closest you can get. Maybe you, you struggle with the disease for multiple years and you're waiting and you're waiting. What's God going to do? Instead of trusting God's Word, often people compromise God's Word and go the ways of the world. And they'll even, as I said, promote the world's ways as God's ways. And they'll do that because the world's ways are very convenient, they're very popular, they're widely practiced, and oftentimes, they're proven to work. Right? They're proven to work to get what I want. But the problem is, as you begin to look at Scripture, you see that God's ways are very different than the world. Very different than man's ways, right? Then that Isaiah 55 says, my ways are like so different than yours. They're like, as far as the heavens, like different. And as you begin to see how God interacts, you see that God's ways are often unpopular. They're often unexpected and inconvenient. God's ways are typically harder, painful, uncomfortable, irrational. They don't feel good. They don't make sense. That's not how they do it. And more than anything, more than anything else in terms of difference, God's ways are slow. They're slow. You talk about the thousands of years of history before Jesus came. And then Jesus didn't show up like, hey, Full-grown man, let's do this. Save the world. It's like 30 years of life. God is slow. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. God is slow. Peter says, yeah, she ain't slow, right? As people count slowness. But in the world, it's slow. Very different. The world's ways may be fast, but they're often very foolish, even when they're fruitful. Let's not believe for a second that the world's ways aren't fruitful, but even when they are fruitful, they're typically unfaithful. That's a lot of Fs, I know, but I like alliteration, my English teacher. That's Sarah, right? So Sarah makes some bad proposals, and she's doing it. 
you can kind of sense the motivation of her heart. We can even empathize and understand why we might be inclined to do that. And then we have Abram. Now, Abram's worse than Sarah because Abram could stop it. He has the responsibility to honor God and to lead his family and particularly his bride in the ways of God and he fails. Again, the man of faith, right? The paragon of faith fails. That should bring us comfort. Like if this is the example of faith, I'm rocking it because I mess up. I don't lead my family perfectly. I don't honor God every moment perfectly. Oop, cat's out of the bag. Pastor's a sinner. There you go. Abram fails here. He fails as a Christian. He fails as a leader. He fails as a protector and a shepherd of his home. And yet, as I said, Abram's remembered as a man of faith. And why is he remembered as that? Because his salvation did not depend upon his perfect obedience. It was established and founded and sustained by God's perfect promise and faithfulness to us. Genesis 15. It's noteworthy, though, that throughout this whole experience, right, Sarah's going, here's a good idea, really the bad idea, right? Abram's like, hey, that's a good idea. Like, bad, 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 bad. God says nothing. God says nothing. He allows it all to to take place. And while I'm very confident that every sin Abram committed grieved the Lord, God does not find it necessary to address every bad thought, word, and decision Abram makes. We could learn a lot from that. Man, we could be nitpicky about unimportant things. God overlooks a lot, and I think He overlooks a lot because He is intending on positioning Himself as something in the story, and it's the fact that He's the hero of the story. We, through Abram, Sarah, we're always going to be the bad guys. God's always going to be the good guy. We're always going to be unfaithful. He's going to be faithful. We're always going to be the victimizer, and God's going to be the victim, but He's always going to come and be the loving hero who rescues. And the story of Abram's unfaithfulness is designed to reveal our own unfaithfulness and to encourage us to hope in the same way he did. Not in trying to, i got to fix this person and fix this situation. Not i got to fix myself. I just have to trust. But Abram fails miserably, and we learn a lot through that. First thing Abram does is ignore his wife instead of comforting her. Now, why would I say that? Well, it's very clear that Sarah's cried out to Abram once or twice. I would say in 10 years, with all the shame and disgrace that maybe being barren brings, she's probably cried out more times than that. She's despairing, without doubt. And you're left to wonder how much of Sarah's efforts to control are maybe a result of Abram's failure to comfort her with God's promises for those 10 years. To put his arm around her to love her, and just to be that comforting shepherd that says, don't worry, God's faithful. I know this is hard, but God's faithful. I'm sorry this is what we're going through, but God's faithful. Maybe he did comfort her. I kind of have a tendency to believe he did not because of my experience with men. And my experience with men largely, not exclusively, but largely, is that 
they tend toward passivity regarding the emotional cultivation of their wives. I say that partially by my own confession and partially just by experience of other men. That it's not natural for us, not easy for us to cultivate that emotion, to be that emotional you know, help and shepherd in difficult situations. Not to be the teacher, though that is a time that will take place, but it's just to be the comforter, to be the one who cries and empathizes. Instead, I have found more men who make excuses about their inability to share their feelings. I just can't do that. Okay, you're not able to do that now. You don't want to learn how to do that. You just can't do that. It's just not who I am. This is what I believe Sarah needs. And unfortunately, like most men, Abram's given over to perhaps other things, distractions from work or play or whatever. As we've seen, motions greatly impact our faith. They shouldn't govern, but without doubt they influence. And in God addressing Adam first when they mess up in the garden, when God coming, Adam, where are you? Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, what did you do? I think what we learn is that the husband, in a marriage at least, is responsible for his wife's faithfulness in a way that she's not responsible for his. He had responsibility to comfort his wife, and it seems he perhaps he didn't. Maybe he did. But as she proposes this, Abram listens to his wife instead of instructing her. Now, before we let's make that statement like, yeah, that's right, we need to listen to our wives. Okay, let's me qualify that for a second. Men should listen to their wives. If you do not listen to your wife with nearly every decision you need to make in your life, you're an idiot and a fool and a lot of other bad things, okay? There's not a decision that I have made in my life, in my marriage, that I would ever make by myself. Why? Because my wife is smarter than me, wiser than me, more emotionally sensitive than me. She knows stuff, and I would be a fool not to listen to her. Okay, so when I say Abram listens to his wife instead of instructing her, now you understand where I'm coming from. I get instructed by my wife often. It's very sanctifying and good. But when Sarah proposes giving her servant to Abram, when she proposes something sinful, he's silent. You should not listen to your husband or wife when they propose something sinful. You should speak up and instruct. From the beginning, Genesis 2, God's design for marriage was monogamous. This divine design was rejected shortly after the fall by a man named Lamech, who's remembered in Genesis 5 as the man who sang a song to his own awesomeness. Okay? Not a great guy. Biblically, if you just survey polygamous relationships in the Bible, yes, from many of God's own people, they never, ever go well. It always causes problems, as is expected when you go against God's designs. But in this case, Abram listens to his wife, implying that he didn't say anything. And he allowed himself to follow her into the world. 
Essentially, I think he did this. And I don't know for sure, but I think many men do this with the greatest intentions. But they are unfortunately wrongly more devoted to their wife's happiness than they are to their home's holiness. And so they'll allow things to happen because they know it'll be upsetting. They basically avoid saying the hard words or going into conflict because, well, I just don't want to rock the boat. There are times when the boat needs to be rocked. So Abram listens instead of instructing her. The last thing he does is he abandons his wife instead of leading her. When Abram sleeps with Hagar, she does conceive, as was the plan. Upon learning that she is pregnant, Sarah comes to Abram very upset. There's several exclamation points in there that you can read. And she says, Hagar's mocking me. I give her over to you. You get her pregnant. And now I'm the butt of the jokes. I'm the one who's looked down upon. I don't know what Sarah's feeling. I wonder sometimes if she expected Hagar to get pregnant. If it was like a setup to go, oh, we'll see who actually has the problem, right? I don't know. But she's clearly upset, and it's clear that Hagar's done something. It's not that the verse says, Sarah assumed she was feeling this way. It says, Hagar showed contempt. So Hagar did something. Sarah even employs the name of the Lord. Oh, the Lord judge you for this bad thing we did that was against him, but, but you God's problems now, right? She's starting to, I wonder if her and Abram at that moment go, oh, what have we done? What have we done? Maybe she's like, why did you let me do this, Abram? He's like, I just wanted to make you happy. Well, we see that was a problem because I'm not happy now. But two wrongs don't make a right, and Abram has even an opportunity here to lead. But instead of leading his wife, he abdicates responsibility and says, hey, she's in your power, which legally she was. She was a servant. Do with her as you please. Wow. Talk about avoiding conflict. Hey, do with her what you want. She's in your power. i got stuff to do. And so Hagar does what she pleases, and it pleases her to abuse and treat Hagar harshly. Enough for her to run away. Pride, jealousy, frustration, abuse, these are not only the fruits of those refusing to wait on the Lord, but they're the fruits of those who refuse to lead for the Lord. Abram allows his second wife to be abused by his first wife. and He doesn't protect either of them. Abram's greatest failure is his passivity. He allows sin to infiltrate his family by standing still and refusing to speak the hard words or do the hard work. And honestly, our families, our churches, our communities are struggling because men in particular are passive. They avoid speaking the hard words, doing the hard work. I'm not saying we should seek conflict. But we certainly shouldn't avoid it. And passivity is not the same as patience. Sometimes we try to pretend that. It's actually quite cowardly. And the opposite of 
passivity isn't passionate activism because that tends towards abuse. It's this in-between, right? It's not that we never speak and we never get angry or we always speak and we always get angry. What does James 1.19 say? You're to be slow to speak, implying that we will speak at some point. We are quick to listen. We should listen all the time. And we are slow to become angry, which means there are times when we should be angry. Passivity is dangerous. And God commands us to action. He commands us to believe. He commands us to lead. He commands us to confront. He commands us to speak. He commands us to love. And yes, He does command us to wait on Him. And as we do wait on Him, we are still supposed to be courageously active in some way. And I don't think passivity and faithfulness can coexist. I really don't. Until God fulfills His promises, we are to faithfully believe His Word, faithfully study His Word, faithfully obey His Word, faithfully share His Word, especially in the midst of difficult things or circumstances. If we don't do that, if we don't dedicate ourselves to God's promises, that we don't talk about God's promises and study God's promises and rest in God's promises and preach God's promises to ourselves and share God's promises to others, that what happens is our circumstances will invariably govern our understanding of God's promises. As opposed to God's promises governing our circumstances. In time, you'll be led astray by the pursuit of happiness or just avoiding conflict or fear of failure, any number of things. Faithfulness means fighting passivity, pursuing and resting in God's promises without fear of failure. Now, that's the unfaithfulness of man. It's a big chunk of the story. It's very clear who we are in the story, a combination of those two. But at the end of the story is where God says, this is what it's really about. Despite the dynamic duo of sinfulness, Sarah and Abram, God proves Himself faithful to His covenant, right? He said in Genesis 15, I will be faithful even if you're unfaithful. And He proves it. It's noteworthy, as I said, that God doesn't intervene this entire time. He allows this darkness to unfold. And in doing that, and when He speaks, we begin to see that He is not merely and only committed to the redemption of His people, we see that He is especially committed to the innocent victims and those most vulnerable. The ones that the Lord Himself, Jesus, called the least of these. Hagar is that. The least of these. There's only one victim in this story. It ain't Abram and it's not Sarah. It's Hagar. This was not her idea. She had no right or power to refuse what her master's requests were. And while she is without question responsible for whatever contemptuous things she did, she is certainly not responsible for the abuse that the circumstances generated. So she flees into the wilderness. The wilderness of Shur, alone, which is east of Egypt. So she went away. Historically, it's interesting, this is the same wilderness 
that the Israelites found themselves in. Moses is writing and recording this for his people as they are going through the wilderness. Well, the first place that they, they came to, the first wilderness after crossing the Red Sea was right around this place. And this is the place where the waters were bitter. And they called out to God, this is horrible, we're going to die of thirst, water's bitter, and He made the water sweet. It's in this wilderness that God provided for His people when they cried out. And this is the wilderness where God finds Hagar. And it's in the wilderness where God speaks to Hagar. And it's in the wilderness where God can always be heard most clearly. Wilderness is where we lose everything and all we can really listen for or find is the voice of God. And as much as we want to avoid wilderness, wilderness is a fantastic place to be because in the midst of the pain, you get very close to God. Hagar's not lurking for God. She's just looking to get away, but God comes looking for her. The Bible says an angel appears to her the angel of the Lord says, where have you come from? Where are you going? All of us have a tendency like Hagar to run from hardship. We can understand that. Especially difficult relationships. It's so much easier when relationships get difficult. We don't know why people jump from church to church. Because relationships are hard and there's a lot of churches out there. So much easier not to function like family. So much easier not to press in and deal with difficult relationships. Let's just get out of here. All of us have a tendency to run from that. And even if we're not treated sinfully necessarily, when we feel like we've been wrong, it's very unnatural for us to press in deeper. Man, you wronged me. Can we be closer? Right? We don't do that. I feel, I feel like you're hurting me. Like, What's going on? It's like, uh, no. We don't press in deeper naturally. We, we run. We want to flee. We want to get away from it. The angel knows where she's come from. Really? You came from Sarah? Oh, why did you know that? Come on. The angel knows. Whenever angels and people ask questions, you're always like, what are they really asking? Because they're not typically asking for knowledge. They're asking to reveal something to us. The angel's really asking why are you running? Why exactly are you running? Well, I've been mistreated. Is that it? And where are you running to? Or let me make it an easier question. This is a question that struck me. As you consider maybe the hardship you've found yourself in now or you found yourself in the past, I think a great question that the angel could be asking, what hell... Are you trying to escape from? And what Savior are you hoping is going to rescue you? What hell do you find yourself in right now? Relationally, financially, materially, physically. And what Savior are you turning to to rescue you? That's her question. His question. Hagar tells the angel about Sarai. They'd like my mistress. Probably filled in the blanks a little bit more. And the angel's response should shake you a little bit because he simply says, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
He doesn't say, return to your mistress, things will get better. Return to your mistress, I'm going to whoop up on her, don't worry. He didn't say anything, right? Return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to your mistress and go ahead and get in the difficult spot you came from. The angel's not simply saying, just book up. He's telling her to trust, to press in, to not run. He's telling her to choose the harder right over the easier wrong, to humble, her, humble herself, to remain steadfast, even if that means stepping into somewhere where she could be potentially mistreated. But he gives her more than just instructions to follow. He gives her a promise that's eerily similar to what he promised Abram and Sarah. A promise that she can hold on to as she goes into the discomfort. He tells her that, look, the Lord has seen your affliction. Listen to your affliction. Knows your affliction. You're going to have a son. He's going to be named Ishmael. He'll be a great nation. He's going to be a wild dude. A lot of people will be against him, but he'll be great. And history tells us that Ishmael, the son of a Hebrew father, an Egyptian mother, will and does become the father of the Arab nations and even the Muslim people as prophesied. And as prophesied is hostile, especially towards Jews and Christians today. The Middle Eastern conflict is a family conflict that's extended back for many, many, many years. But our best lessons are learned, I think, from Hagar's response. And I'll close with these. She, she honors the angel as if he's God. And unlike most other angels in the Bible, this particular angel, the angel of the Lord, doesn't reject that worship. Doesn't say, oh, don't worship me, I'm not God. He is. Scholars and commentators would argue this is an appearance of Jesus Christ before the incarnation. But the angel names her son Ishmael, meaning God hears in time of need. And in response, Hagar gives the angel a name and declares the angel to be El-Rohi, which means the God who sees and provides. So we have two statements about God through this conversation so far. God who hears my need and God who sees and provides. God hears, God sees, and God helps. In the time of difficulty, unlike Abram, God is the one who proves himself faithful or Abram should have been. God doesn't remain silent, and if we run, He chases us into our own wilderness, which is noted, Abram did not. And in that place, God confronts us. He doesn't just comfort us, He does confront us, asks us some hard questions, and then He instructs us, and then He comforts us with His promises. But we're left with a question, why would God ask anyone, Hagar, us, to go back into a place of hardship. Well, in part, it is for Hagar. And it's because, in a very different way than the world, humility is the path to greatness. Humility 
is the path to glorious restoration. Humility is usually, the lack thereof, the problem in most relationships and the solution in most relationships. 1 Peter 5, great passage written to those who are truly suffering for their faith, says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Couldn't you hear that being spoken to Hagar? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Run away from him! No, resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. My situation is totally different. Okay. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. Living a life of faith means living a life of humility. It means submitting our perceptions and our plans and our decisions under the hand of God. That's faith. Not controlling our circumstances, surrendering them to God. Most often, what that results in, let's be honest, some valleys. Some valleys where you're forced to look up to God. Valleys. Valleys where the actual life is. Ain't much life on the tip of the mountain. But we're in the valley in faith, trusting that if not in this life, we're certain in the next that God will bring us to the mountaintop where He is. Or, as John Piper said recently, trusting that as you lose through humility, as you spend time in hardship and even suffer, that everything good you ever lost will one day be restored in Christ forever. Believing that. But why else might God ask someone to endure what feels hard or hopeless or meaningless or just difficult? Well, Hagar's humility is not just for Hagar. It's also for Abram and Sarah. Hagar humbles herself. She goes back, obviously, and Abram listens to her story. He must have because he decides to name the child Ishmael. And consider what it felt like for 13 years of life before Isaac would come. Of what calling his name out every day would mean. For 13 years, from the day he's born until he's 13. Ishmael. Ishmael. Hey, Ishmael. Ishmael. I love you, Ishmael. Ishmael, Ishmael. Or perhaps they remembered hearing this. God, here's my need. God, here's my need. Hey, God, here's my need. God, here's my need. God, here's my need. Imagine 13 years of saying that every day. God, here's my need. And the impact that that would have on you. Perhaps you would begin to believe it. Our commitment to remain faithful 
when it is the most difficult of circumstances, is not simply about securing our own blessing. It's about glorifying God and being a blessing to others. And even if everyone, our leaders, our husbands, our wives, our neighbors, our friends, destroy it all and maybe even work to secure their own blessings, let us endeavor, for those who believe in His promises, to live like Christ, who emptied Himself of everything and denied Himself of everything He deserved, every desire He could have fulfilled so that others might be blessed. That's our calling. We are called to suffer like Christ. We are called to press into hardship when everyone else runs. We are called to do the difficult work of relationship to the glory of God for our joy and the blessing of others. Jesus is the God who hears our cry. Jesus is the one who hears our need. Jesus is the one who promises to help if you will cry out to Him and wait for Him. As we stand firmly on the promises of God, let us all surrender the need to control how and when and where those promises come to fulfillment. Let us deny our need to know, our need to have, our need to control the circumstances so that we might be found resting in one person and one thing, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll end with this prayer that I hope and trust will become all of our prayer. It's an old Puritan prayer. It's actually just a sentence out of it, but it struck me this week. For all of us who consider the circumstances we're in right now, the hardships we find ourselves, or those ones perhaps you are tempted to or have run away from, that you will believe this. So if you bow with me and pray, Father, we pray this prayer. Would you help me to see how good your will is in all? And even when it crosses mine, teach me to be pleased with it. Lord, would you help me to see how good your will is in all? And even when it crosses mine, Teach me to be pleased with it. Help us to see how good Your will is in all. And even when it crosses mine, teach me to be pleased with it. Father, that is our prayer. That You will help us to trust Your promises in the midst of difficult circumstances. To believe that You are the God who hears our cry. You are the God who sees our need. You are the God who provides. And let our table here, our communion table, remind us that you make good on your promises. For you satisfied our greatest need in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Giving us His blood to cover our sin, to remove our shame and our guilt, that we might become your children. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.